everyone, and welcome back to the Film Score Podcast. Today, my guest is Maya Schenfeld, who's really broken into the scoring world in the last year or so. Back in January 2022, she released her debut album, In Free Fall, which is a bit of a minimalist deconstruction in some ways, and made it on the top ten lists of a lot of publications' best ambient, experimental, avant-garde releases of the year. And shortly after releasing that, she worked on the Oscar-shortlisted documentary, The Flag Makers, doing a much more minimalist piece in the vein of minimalism like Philip Glass and Steve Reich, although taking it, modernizing it, changing it, making it her own. It's obviously not, not an ape of that. The Flag Makers follows several workers in a flag-making factory in southern Wisconsin, many of whom are immigrants, and it creates an interesting and organic way to look at the American dream and how it's changed and what these people's perceptions are, both from the immigrant standpoint and from the standpoint of people born in America as well. And so... Maya and I talk about these two releases, about her long-standing interest in film music, which began when she was a, a young girl back in Israel, and continue the conversation from there. As always, you can find out more about Maya on her social media, and remember to always follow along the film score as well, so you don't miss out on anything. And if you haven't yet, follow the show on your favorite service of choice, so you'll always get notified when there's a new episode out. Looks like February is going to be a very busy month. I'll have two more very big interviews coming up in the second half of the month, as well as perhaps a few other solo one-off episodes. It's been quite a while since I've done one of those. But until then, sit back and I hope you enjoy. Maya, thank you so much for joining me. How have you been? Um, great. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? <laughs> oh, I'm I'm doing well. Uh, look, I'm I'm glad you could join me. I I imagine that the last twelve months or so for you have been kind of a whirlwind. Go back to January of twenty two, release your debut album in Free Fall. Not long after, you start working on the Flag Makers, the documentary we're going to talk about. Then I I noticed that over the last few weeks in Free Falls, it came out to great reviews, and then it's found itself on a bunch of best of year end lists and now the flag makers is oscar shortlisted we'll find out in i think a couple days or a week whether the whether it makes the final five cut but like that's a wild 12 months how's that been has that felt a little surreal or like too good to be true for you a little bit yeah it's definitely been a ride like it's been incredibly exciting it's been just so positive. Like, you know, I, I didn't expect any of this to happen. You know, I've been making music for as long as I can remember. And, you know, you do things and, and you just, with the record and then the film, I always try to do the best work I can. And then you put it out in the world and you just see how, what happens, you know? And I know it's not a thing I can control. So I'm just, I've been very kind of high and excited and looking forward to more, more of, you know, more music, basically. Um, after 22. Yeah, and I mean, does it also, like, now that you've released all these things into the world and had this sort of reception or reaction, does that sort of set new expectations for yourself on every subsequent thing you create or release? 
I'm really trying to kind of tune or turn that off, that voice in my head that said things have landed so well with the external world this time, so I, I have to kind of keep up the expectations. I'm trained as a classical musician, and I've had a long run of like love and hate towards that sort of rigorous old world training. But one thing that I do love that this kind of training has taught me is to always aspire to do very good work. And, and I think my own standards can be quite high. And then I just hope that it resonates with people, but I try to kind of and be genuine and authentic with the work that I do. And then and I always have very low expectations. So like <laughs> everything is a positive surprise. <laughs> um, yeah, that's kind of how I roll. At this point, though, how can you have low expectations? I just saw... An hour ago, I looked on uh, Stereo Gum, and you were on the best, among the best ten experimental albums of the year. I mean, that's like that's wild. It, it is. It's it's totally wild, um, especially because I mean, I'm just so I I'm happy about it, really, because <laughs> because you know, there's been there's been so many. So I've lived. I'm I grew up in Jerusalem, and um, I I've been in Berlin for twelve years now, which is a long time. But I still also am very connected to Jerusalem, and especially within Freefold, first record. I worked on it for three and a half years, and it's been quite a back and forth of trying to find the right sound and the right voice, because I am classically trained, but at some point I also spent some time in India and experimented with um, classical Indian music. And then I got back to Berlin and then I played in punk rock bands for a while. And um, and then I kept on doing like avant-garde experimental music, which is what the focus was in school uh, or in the academy here. So trying to come up like to develop my own voice that sort of puts together all of these influences has been a real challenge. And uh, and that's why it took three and a half years and it was beautiful to work on it. So I'm, I'm very happy that um, that it landed so well with people. Yeah, I bet. And yeah, I didn't realize that the extent of your musical influences and training were so broad. So was that difficult to, you know, not necessarily distill them because it's not like your works are taking, maybe overtly, they're not taking a piece from every single one of those. But like, how has that journey gone from like finding what Maya's sound is? It has been challenging, to be honest, because there were days I was like, yes, electric guitar, distortion, bring it on, more distortion, <laughs> you know, and like no form or, I mean, microtonal music. I mean, we shouldn't refer to it microtonal, but like um, alternative tuning systems are things that I'm also interested in. And so trying to find a musical language that sort of like puts together everything. I mean, I'm still learning. I'm still evolving, which is why also like talking with you today is really interesting because... On one hand, in 22, I released In Free Fall, the record, which um, for those of you who haven't heard it yet, it's, it sort of unfolds a series of electroacoustic pieces for brass, analog synthesizers, electric guitar, a youth choir. Um, it's pretty wild, very textural. And then the film score, it's chamber music-like, and it's written for piano and strings. And the starting point as a reference was um, mi uh, minimal music, 70s minimal music, American minimal music, and also allowing myself to, after I finally, okay, this is this is my voice as an artist, as an avant-garde artist, this is what I do, allowing myself to, to write music that is a bit more tonal and Western and influenced by these genres that I love was totally fun, but in a way it's exciting to talk about it because it's um, two very different projects, basically. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And jumping into 
the starting off point that you mentioned for the flag makers for some of the 70s, particularly American minimalism, I know that names like Philip Glass or Steve Reich came up as reference points early on. And obviously, you don't want to just ape or mimic their music. Creating something a little bit new, different, more modern, more contemporary. How did you go about doing that? And then how difficult is it to escape the shadows that people like that cast because they've had such a an outstanding impact on I mean on on minimalism and sort of on the the western avant-garde more broadly yeah i mean they basically coined the genre um and i played a lot of of this music as a guitarist actually i played um Reich's electric counterpoint that was written for pet metheny at a time and I, I also played Julius Eastman's Gay Gorilla as a guitarist. So I'm very familiar with the aesthetic and this music from the lens of a performer, actually, which um, has been helpful in understanding how this music works. In the production of the score and the film, we had really very interesting conversations because I love minimalism, but I also had to, both Cynthia and I wanted to understand is this the right aesthetic? And how can, as like you said, how can we make it more contemporary? How can we have a bit of distance from it? We don't want to mimic. We, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. in Western music, you know, we have major and minor. And so everything is limited and everything, there's, it's self-referential in a sense. It's very difficult to innovate, which is what In Freefall was about. But then there has to be a way to make it your own, to find your own voice in that. And I think for the flag makers, um, although that was our starting point, I think the way we work with the strings and the sound and there is, um, so everything has been recorded in the studio, but um, there is, a, it's basically electroacoustic, so there is very subtle electronic processing. And I think this is, this is something that I feel like gives it a different voice that is more contemporary and more like 2023. And I don't want to take us on too much of a tangent, but can you describe a little bit more about the concept of the genre of electroacoustic? Yeah, totally. I mean, it can mean a lot of things. It's kind of like a, it's it's a bit of a hype word at the moment, but it's just beautiful music. But the idea is that basically you record an acoustic instrument and you process it using digital or analog electronic tools. If you know Sakamoto, uh, Ryochi Sakamoto, mm -hmm. I really like that piano with the, the electronic sub bass. I love that, you know? What I do a lot in the flag makers is take... Stop me if I'm nerding out or getting too technical. No, no, no. Okay. Um, so what I love doing is I'm leaning a lot on harmony, which is something that is true for both my artistic music and film music. So it's it's choosing sort of like harmonic space and then maybe recording arpeggiated chords, writing a score that is more open for interpretation, and then using electronics to stretch and manipulate them. So making it more textural in a way. Interesting. Okay, because it's something that I had seen particularly associated with your music, but then, you know, it's, it's also a term that I've, I've seen bounced around, and part of this whole project is also just sating my own curiosity as well, so I, I appreciate you uh, jumping into it, and yeah, I, I don't think it should be uh, too nerdy for most people listening in, because this is already such a, a niche, nerdy subject matter in the first place. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just super fun. It's just anyone at home, you know, it's about taking your phone, using your recording device on your smartphone or taking a contact microphone and putting it on a table and then, you know, making some sounds using coins or whatever, and then taking that 
And then if, if you know, if you're into a little bit of like music production, putting it in some sort of, sort of a software, whatever you use, there are some free, some great, almost free software on the market. And then just reversing the recording, um, adding more frequencies to it, stretching it, all of that. And it's, it's like magic soundscaping. I find that so interesting as well because it seems to continue the trajectory of expanding what sounds that music can be made up of. You go even a century ago where it's very much like the traditional instruments we think of and over the last, I don't know, 70 years or so, 80 years, like once you start hitting things like music concrete and then like the beginning electronic music of the 50s, 60s, 70s, like now all these things i know some people find a like a repulsion to it because it's so different and it keeps getting different but like ah, seeing the world continually expand is very exciting and not just hearing new sounds that you may have never heard before but also taking what i think electroacoustic does as well is, is taking things that are far more familiar and making them a little bit different changing them in ways we might not expect or might not be familiar with. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And, you know, electronic music production has advanced so much and is very accessible, a lot more accessible than it used to be back in the 70s or the 60s, which is very exciting. And, and this is part of something that one can use in their color palette for, for musicking. And since I am classically trained as a 20-year-old student in Berlin, I had a bit of this, you know, a little bit of institutional critique of like, yes, this is all great. I love counterpoint. I love orchestrating. I love the big orchestra, all of that. But we live in the world with Beyonce and Jay-Z and Billie Eilish. And, you know, and they do that all the time. I, I mean, I think in um, Bury a Friend by Billie Eilish, or is that Bury a Friend? Is that the right? I think in one of her greatest hits, she basically, she was at a dentist and she recorded the dentist drill and that's a part of the song. So anything, mm. any sound could be huge for production. And I love that. Interesting. I actually know yeah. that. That's, that's very cool. And yeah, and I, it's like really invigorating. I love hearing things that I hear, you know, the first note, the first sound when it comes up and I go like, what is this? Where does this come from? It's great. But stepping away from, from that a little bit, I, I know that you've had an interest in scoring for film or maybe for other media as well for a while where did that interest first arise for you all right i'm gonna i'm gonna tell you that <laughs> i'm gonna answer this question honestly i think it's been a childhood dream to be honest i have memories of myself being in third grade and watching um so the jerusalem cinematheque is quite an institution so film was always very central in mm -hmm. my up bringing and um, um, and there was an amazing sort of art house film library um, and we used to borrow cassettes and then DVDs and I used to after watching like French and you know European cinema um, I used to just go to the piano and play the music that I heard in the film mm -hmm. and I really I really wanted to do that but uh, it felt like there weren't very many role models of people studying composition um it was more like the traditional like okay you're a guitarist you do guitar you're a violinist and so it took me a while to find my voice as a composer after i moved to berlin i realized oh you can be a composer that's the thing you do and then i was like <laughs> you know so and 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 then this film is basically the the first major film project i worked on an amazing short short film earlier this summer as well, which was a four-minute film. But this is my first film, and um, I got to it through... I, I worked in some library music 
projects before. So I did work on, on music that is suitable for film, but from the other side. And this music that I composed for EMI's Productions Music Library has a life of its own. And the editor of the Flagmakers wanted to use one of my library music tracks for this film. And this is how Cynthia found me, basically. Cynthia Wade, the director. I mean, did that surprise you? And I'll, I'll say a little preface. like I don't know as much about library music. You know, my, my thought is always it's companies just placing it in you know, ads or spots, things like that. So when Cynthia mentioned that to me, that she found the piece of library music, the track Accelerate, and like loved it. I was surprised just because it seemed uncommon. So did that surprise you? Yeah, because, you know, um, (laughs) (laughs) the crazy thing is that also because there's a bit of a thing, which I am now slowly totally going to own i like making tonal music and i like making avant-garde music and i also like playing punk and that's my music practice um but there is a bit of a thing um with some of my best friends and b-siders you know in the avant-garde sometimes it's like oh you wrote tonal music that's not allowed so basically the library music project is released under a french name um that is called rouge fou so it's not even released under my name and cynthia (laughs) and cynthia really loved accelerate that she was like who is this person and she got in touch and she's in LA I'm in Berlin we never met and we scheduled a zoom call we had a really nice meeting and I was like yeah there's no way it's gonna happen and I was like totally no pressure if you want you know send me the latest cut you've got I'll send you some some demos um and I was like yeah there's no way it's gonna happen and then she was like no 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 it's you you're gonna do it which is incredible um so yeah that's that's how it started. And I, I do want to return to that in a second. But first, you know, mentioning there being like a, a condescension from people in avant-garde circles towards tonal music. And you kind of get that throughout all sorts of other genres and subgenres and styles of music elitism looking down on other types. This is like an unfairly broad question, but as someone who's gone through the schooling and interacted and been a part of so many different groups like that. Why do you think that sort of elitism or looking down on things is so prevalent in music? I don't know. There is a cool angle to it. It's like, you know, Mm. this is my belief and I'm going to die for it. You know, that sort of a thing. This is my school. And, you know, honestly, I don't know. I do know that in the digital age, there is definitely an impact of the way music is distributed that makes it I mean, more difficult for artists to have so many different facets because of the way the algorithms work. And this is something that is talked about a lot. And then amongst artist circles, I think it's changing as well. If you'll talk to people who are 20 now, I get the sense that they're a lot more open. And then, you know, there is a part of me that respects that, like, because, because, you know, being really very good at making music, you know, some people just really feel like you have to be sort of, um, it's almost sacred. There's only one way to do it, and that's the way you're going to do it. So I, I definitely, I get that. But it's just happens to be that my case that I like experimenting and pushing my own boundaries and, you know, trying out things. Interesting. And that's, that's always been my preference in, in music taste as well. So I, I see the upsides uh, that you mentioned, but I, I always approve of pushing boundaries in every direction. Saying that the algorithms can influence like artists' choices of what music to try sounds utterly dystopian and depressing. That's, that's like a, a whole other 
massive conversation issue that you know we won't dive into. That's a lot to navigate. Yeah, but we'll jump away from that now. Going back to the flag makers and that first conversation with Cynthia when you were putting things together to her latest cut. I mean, maybe at that point, that was what, earlier, mid-2022, so that might have been, correct me if I'm wrong, it might have been your first time really doing that to picture in that sort of situation. So how did you approach putting some initial music together for her to listen to? So what we did was I had more music that has not been released um, in the style of the project that she liked. So I was like, why don't you have a listen to that and see if there are there are other things that work in, in that folder. And I can start also composing to picture and send you some sketches and you can see how you feel about them. And I also I'm just going to mention that um, the flag makers is directed by two directors, Sharon Lees and Cynthia Wade, and um, they're both fantastic. And Cynthia was more took on the role of music supervisor. So this is why we're going to mention Cynthia a little bit more in this conversation. But Sharon has also been part of some of the conversation and it was a pleasure working with them both. All right. So coming back to our process, we used earlier sketches, unused demos, and I created new ones that Hilary Batchelder, our fantastic editor, could use while they were editing the final cuts. Yeah. Hmm. So do they effectively like almost temp the documentary with those tracks of yours? Yeah. Yeah, okay. that's what we did. I have a lot of friends who score film in Berlin. Um, there's quite a community here and they're all wonderful. And I've had a lot of support also in this project. And one good advice I got in the beginning is like, do not go into the rabbit hole of Tamps. You're not going to come out of it. And <laughs> so I, I really, I was like, you know, Cynthia is also trained as a musician. So she, she was very articulate about what she had in mind for different situations, like plucky strings, harp, and, and we worked from there. Okay, and because it is quite a restrained sound palette, it's it's very much I th- I think almost entirely piano, string quartet, harp, electronics, and I think there's there's a little woodwind in there as well. Having something so restrained in, in that particular palette was that a choice made very early on between you two? Yeah, because we wanted to record all the instruments live. Um, and it's a short documentary. And actually, the whole process happened within from the initial conversation until completion. We had two and a half months. So it was very fast, maybe three. So, I mean, it was clear that also there was something about the chamber music like sort of approach that we took for the ensemble that felt right for the mood atmosphere of the film. It wasn't about making something that is grand it's it was about letting the story tell itself and supporting the narrative in this case well and that is very central to how the documentary plays out even though the company that a lot of this occurs at is i think it's like the biggest flag maker in the u.s the music and the actual storytelling doesn't have a similarly large scope it's the opposite it's very intimate and personal so it it makes sense that the music would also do something similar. And because of that, we do really follow a, a few individuals primarily, but given that it's a, it's a short documentary as well, was there a difficulty in trying to keep one coherent sounder palette, give a unique sound or distinct sound to these individuals all in about 35 minutes? Yeah, so this is such a good question because it's something I thought about a lot because I know that this is purposeful music, but it was really important for me that each one of the cues would stand alone as a as a miniature, as a, as a mini piece that you could listen to it and there will be something to it that it wouldn't be 
just a pad. Not that there is anything wrong with having just a pad, but yeah, so like you said, the film is um, 35 minutes, very short, and we're following four protagonists. And I don't know if one notices during the first time one watches the film, but there's about 22 minutes of music in the film, but, you know, very subtle in in a lot of uh, moments. And the four protagonists are quite different from each other. So it was important for me to create a sound for each one of them, but not to single out any of them particularly. And that was not easy, but I think we got there in the end. So what what are some of the things you did then to to strike that balance? So in in some of the earlier versions we had different instruments for Sugar Ray had um, a different we used a woodwinds for Sugar Ray and it really complemented his narrative in a way yeah we used a harp more frequently we tried a lot of different things and in the end it is mostly piano and string and I think Actually, Sugar Ray's Q is my favorite one, and one thing that really helped to create a sound for each one of them was actually leaning on harmony. There is a key that really complements each one of the storytellers. Um, so Roddy says in E flat major, um, Alice in A flat major and minor, and Sugar Ray's in B flat, and and so. Although a lot of people, a lot of music theory people would say, what, what are you talking about? The, the ratios are the same and there is no difference between B flat major and C major. I personally think that there is a difference between different keys. I That's an emotional or a, a mood difference. And so I felt like by trying to kind of introduce different harmonies for each character, it helps sort of organize the film and, and change shift the mood in, in a way that supports the, the events and the film. Hmm, interesting. As the process went on, what were some of the conversations like and with you and Cynthia? And was it difficult for you going from creating your solo artist album to then working on something that was both more collaborative, but also when you're scoring for film, TV, documentary, where the music is taking like a secondary supporting role to the larger project? It wasn't actually, like, since it's something that I've wanted to do for a long time, it's clear to me that this is different, that this is not about me, but it's about the production, it's about the the story, and, you know, most importantly, it's about the protagonists and about supporting them in a way that's fair to them, you know, and the directors, because they know, I haven't been to Adder Flag, I only visited after the, the work on the film was complete already, so... I, I had to really rely on Cynthia for sort of giving me the larger context of the story. The earlier edits of the film were a little bit longer, and that helped too, because I got to see different events and scenes in the protagonists' lives, and that really helped. But taking a supporting role was a shift that I was really happy to do, because that's that's what this project is about, and, and that uh, it made sense, you know? And that actually raises another aspect that I was thinking about where you mentioned that you, you hadn't been there during or prior to the this process, but the documentary uses this flag-making factory facility as sort of a vehicle to talk about the American dream and immigration and what that all means. As someone that obviously is not American and doesn't live in the country, did that give you a different perspective as you know almost as an outsider in approaching the project my perspective is for sure probably different since i haven't spent that much time in the u.s and i come from a place that is it's fair to say it's a complicated place especially jerusalem and as a jewish person i also live in berlin as a third generation jewish moroccan polish brazilian person (laughs) 
So a lot of these topics are resonated. And then the events that happen in the US have a massive impact on mm -hmm. the rest of us, certainly on Israeli and Palestinian politics. And so I think the sort of the tapestry, the very nuanced tapestry that Cynthia and Sharon sort of weave together, tell a broader story about polarization and the complexity of immigration. And the American dream is a bit more particular, I think, as an idea. And so I, as someone who lives in Berlin, I just really, it was important for me to, to really connect to it and take it to heart and, and also not be cynical, which it can be a position that one takes, you know, it's like the American dream. And, and it was important for me to really think, how can I as an individual connect to this story from my privileged sort of, um, I don't know, privilege, but I'm a musician, I get to work on music and I see that as a privilege. But I still understand the complexities of living in a place where you're not speaking your mother tongue, not even your second language. And yeah, and it's it is an interesting point, particularly on sort of the the sincerity with which the approach is, because I, I think it is very easy, especially now or, or recently for people to be cynical about that. But given that the documentary focuses on individuals, in one sense, it, it does feel hard to have that cynicism because there is that sincerity and like that that truth within each one of them that does have to be uh, a bit difficult to approach yeah and you know i just have to i think cynthia and sharon did a fantastic job telling the story of you know radisa ali barb and sugary because in such a short time there is the broader representation of what each one of them may or may not stand for but also there's the individual story of the hardships one has as someone you know migrants working class and and the connection i mean these people consciously or unconsciously are making the american flag so i mean their relationship to where they live in is so present um and it's interesting because you know in germany flags are kind of a taboo really people yeah yeah, I think it's it's historically, I think, I mean, being patriotism and flags may come out for like a football game, but generally you people don't often, it's not a big thing here. It's uh, maybe even the opposite. So so seeing that aspect of the documentary, I mean, th that almost comes as a surprise to you because I, I have heard in, you take England, for instance, if someone just displays the English flag, that can also have taboos or certain things associated with it as well. So, I mean, did it surprise you seeing the sort of prevalence of the flag in the documentary and, like, the meaning of it? I think I'm sort of... I wouldn't say it surprised me because I think, in a sense, although I haven't spent that much time in the U.S., in Israel you grew up very influenced by American culture, which is mm -hmm. kind of fun because also all the films and the TV <laughs> and, you know, and some fun, you know, drive-in and food stuff. They're nice things to it. So it didn't entirely surprise me. Yeah, and, and it's interesting how meaningful it is to them. And I think also... I mean, there are interesting things that happen with the flag also in the Jewish and Israeli context as well that can be also um, complicated, similar to the, to the film, so I could connect with that as well. As I thought about it, both listening to the music on its own, uh, watching the film and just sort of reflecting a little bit, I, I think that complication and the different ways you can think about you know, a flag, um, the American dream, things like that, comes through in the music as well, because except for, I think, really the, the cue exercise with Radhika, the music, for the most part, does 
carry an array of conflicting emotions. A lot of the times there's there's an optimism or there's a hope, but it's tinged in a sort of melancholy or somber feeling that does carry throughout the film and, and throughout the experiences of these individuals. So I, I assume that having that conflict inherent in the music was something intentional. A hundred percent, yes. I mean, I think it was intentional. I think while we were like at the weeds of like really working on it, the turnover and the process was so fast for me that I think it also happened intuitively because, you know, this is where the narrative goes and, and it's just so present. And I guess we can all connect to this ambivalence that one can feel towards one's own flag. And in a sense, you know, you want to be proud and you want to be grateful for what the place you live in gives you. But, you know, it also represents so much. So I think, you know, the music moves exactly like you described it in this space that is between hope and despair. And it's celebrating very small moments, but it's it's never really going sort of like major, major and, and celebratory because it is a nuanced film and it needed a nuanced sort of um, approach also for the music. I think particularly the moment... There's this cue called um, the 4th of July cue. Um, it's a moment in the film that Sugar Ray, it starts with Sugar Ray swinging his son in his backyard. And I really like it because the piano very subtly comes in with arpeggios that are sort of timed with the swing in the courtyard. And then they're transitioning into a 4th of July sequence uh, with fireworks. And um, in that particular moment, before we see the celebrations of the 4th of July, um, Sugar Ray says, but the country doesn't love you back. It doesn't love you back. And so you cannot sort of bring out the entire orchestra and the violins and just celebrate that moment. But there is a cognitive dissonance that happens there, if you know what I mean. It's very moving. It's very emotional, but it's not what you'd expect for the 4th of July ce celebration. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly what I was thinking, where if you stripped out the context and showed just a short clip of some of these people handing out American flags and people having a good time and the fireworks going off, you would expect a big brass fanfare or something. And once you put it into context and you hear what Sugar Ray is talking about, and even you know, around then Ali has a phone conversation, a video conversation with his, his mother, I think, and he's very happy then, but his happiness also juxtaposes what life was like for him before and there's just too much going on pulling in different directions where having that big fanfare victorious moment that you'd expect would be it so missed the point it'd be almost insulting to the the journeys and the feelings that these people have yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think from what I've been hearing from Sharon and Cynthia, I think this is the big, the really special thing about the film, because I think a lot of of people hear about it and, and they think it would be an entirely different film. And then they take 30 minutes out of their day and they watch it and they've had wonderful responses from their friends and communities and filmmakers and for good reason, because it does sort of unpack the complexity that we've just talked about. It's not just the most straightforward sort of patriotic essay about the American flag. It's exactly yeah. like that. I'll be honest, I had obviously known a little bit about it before watching, and there was a part of me that was like, oh, is this just going to be like a 35-minute sort of patriotic documentary? And one, I should have known better, but I'm really so glad that it wasn't, because if it was, it would be so superficial. But uh, 
to move a little bit back towards the music purely, mm-hmm. the cues in it are tend to be like quite short, one, two minutes or so. And then I was listening to In Freefall, and like a lot of the song lengths there can be six, seven minutes, doing both of those in a relatively short period. Was there a difficulty for you going from these songs or these tracks that have a lot more time to develop versus something that really needs to build and hit an emotion in a minute and a half. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely challenging. It's a thing about commercial music as a whole that it needs to have in one minute and a half, you'd have part A of the cue, part B, part C, and somehow like you start with some records and then somehow, you know, something happens and you need to change it entirely. Like, to be honest, I think it's really a skill to be able to do that. But it's also really fascinating. And I, I really want to embrace that form of like supporting the events, the picture, and being able to change the moods if necessary, and and being that flexible, I think it's really, it's quite a skill, for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely is. And one more aspect of that, I know that at least as of now, there's no official release of the music, but I think there's, what, 13, 14 cues that you have together. Is that something that you're planning on doing? We're definitely all open for it. Everybody has been super busy, so we haven't really sort of spent much time talking about publishing yet. But in my mind, I'd rather think that this music will come out at some point and has to work as well as it can. I mean, I mean, as you mentioned, some of the cues are, you know, it's purposeful music. Some of them are 90 seconds long, some of them are two minutes, and some of them are even shorter. But I think it's a really special project to me. And we recorded it here in Berlin on Babelsberg's Korn Stage Studio, which is one of the, if not the oldest um, film scoring studio in Germany. It's an amazing, it's a beautiful studio. And, you know, I think the recording engineer did a fantastic job and the musicians were so good that I'd love for the music to be out there at some point. But, you know, who knows? <laughs> yeah. And look, I'll I'll say I've, I've spent my fair share of time listening to things like grindcore, so I'm I'm used to 20-second songs, but not everybody is. Is there a hesitancy for you, given some of the shorter track lengths, to have things sort of expanded upon? Or you know, for you, is it because like this is the music that was created for the film? If there's going to be released, that's what should be released. I think I would extend some of them because they can have more body, for sure. But it's also up to what Cynthia and Sharon might prefer. But definitely sort of my point of departure was like, it probably will be what it is if it comes out. And, and that's fine too. But I think there is room. I promise I won't make them into eight minutes, eight minute tracks. <laughs> I don't know. People do love expanded score releases. So there's always an audience for it. Yeah, the material is there. So, I mean, I have a bad joke, but. Yeah, I'm gonna, yeah, some minimalist stuff. You know, it's just a loop, you just drag, no, it's not, but it could be. <laughs> just drag the loop to the right, and then, you know, it turns into three minutes, but no. Yeah, yeah and easy, you know, you add a little processing here and there, and there you um, go. Yeah, there you go. I wish it was that easy, but yeah. Listen, I, th- I think that's a great spot to stop on. My thank you again for jumping on to chat with me. It was great listening and watching the film, listening to your music, and also listening to In Free Fall. I'm, I always love hearing new things, especially in I'm a sucker for minimalism, too. Anyone who's listened to me a lot or talks to me for more than three minutes probably heard me talk about Full Glass. So hearing anything that has even the, the vagaries of an influence from him, I'm a big fan of. Thank you so much. Um, I love talking with you. Thank you. <laughs>